1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street. Here is your top five at five. Stocks looking for a fresh start after suffering their worst first quarter in years. This is the bond market. Sends a big warning sign, but futures? They're pointing to gains. Oil back below 100 bucks a barrel on continued lockdowns in China? The big new release of the emergency reserves. But will that move have a real impact, or is it just political theater? Europe's energy crisis facing a new test as Putin mounts a standoff over Russian gas. That as peace talks resume. It's the stock market planet of the apes. Shares of GameStop soaring as the retail crowd favorite announces a stock split. And down to the wire, Amazon employees voting on whether to unionize at two warehouses Yield split results. We'll show them, to you? On this Friday, April 1st, you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, good Friday morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan, and mercifully, we made it to April. I know it felt like we would never get here, but we did. So welcome to April 1st, and that is no fooling. All right. Let's get right out of the markets and your money. Stock futures, they are higher across the board. Not a lot. They're up about eh, two to three tenths of 1%. There you see Dow futures up about uh, 180 points right now. It is a new month and a new quarter. And we head into it with markets looking to shake off their worst quarter since the March crash when the pandemic hit. And one of the worst of all time. Despite a late March rally, the three major indexes unable to shake off steep losses. Down the S&P, down 45 and 5%. The S&P breaking a seven-quarter win streak, by the way, if you're counting at home. Technology stocks, really the big loser, the NASDAQ, down more than 9% for the quarter, despite a very, very good March. January and February, as we know, were just terrible. Well, today, all of you are going to gear up for the monthly jobs number later on today, 30 a.m. That data expected to show a gain of about 490,000 jobs in March. And for the unemployment rate to tick down slightly to 3.7 percent. We'll see, though, if that number is hit or whether we are statistically at full employment. All right, let's get a check on the bond market now and that inversion heard around the world. Well, you hear that term a lot lately on CNBC, but what does it all mean? Don't be afraid to ask. Well, inversion means that the yield on shorter term notes, this one, the two-year bond, rose above that of the 10-year bond. That is the first time that has happened in about three years. It is considered by some a bit of a recession warning sign. Here's why. It means because rates may have to come down longer term as financial conditions get worse over time, meaning either the bond market or the Fed or both is going to cut rates to revive the economy a few years out. That's why short-term rates go up. Things are good in the near term. But longer-term rates, they go down because people are worried, hey, what may happen in three or four years could be worse than what's going on right now. That's why that inversion is watched by many. But do keep this in mind, that so-called real yields, those numbers, not the ones on your screen, but the ones that also factor in inflation and which matter more to many on the street, they are not inverted. So we're not going to call it a, a clear warning sign, call it mixed But it is something to sort of put in your pocket and take note of. All right, take note of oil as well. We are back under $100 a barrel. All that of continued lockdowns in parts of China, including Shanghai. We'll get more on that in a minute. And the release of a million barrels per day of oil for the next six months from America's energy oil reserves. All part of a plan to try to bring down gasoline prices likely ahead of the November midterm elections. Right now, WTI crude is at $99. $99. And 86 cents, that about 43 cents per barrel. So maybe a little short-term gasoline relief is indeed on the way. All right, let's stay now with energy because Vladimir Putin drawing a hard line in the sand over Russian gas, telling the world to pay up in rubles or risk having the gas line turned off. For more on that and your trading day ahead in Europe, let's get to Juliana Tattelbaum in London. Juliana, good morning.
2: Brian, good morning. Well, this was something that President Putin and the Kremlin have been threatening for some time now. But what changed yesterday, President Putin issued this presidential decree saying that uh, unfriendly countries will have to pay for energy in rubles or face a supply cutoff. Now, European leaders, world leaders have long been warning um, that this is a violation of current gas contracts. So we've actually seen a somewhat a calm reaction from some key European leaders, including um, a German and Italian. Italian country heads, suggesting that this new mechanism from the Kremlin won't apply to them. But of course, a a huge number of open questions remain. As for European markets, there's a a pretty strong degree of resilience being shown this morning, um, shrugging off those concerns around what the energy picture will look like moving forward. So we've got green um, for the most part, the only market in the red, the Swiss one down about 11 basis points or so, but green elsewhere. From a sector perspective, this is what the picture looks like this morning. Europe, we've got banks and basic resources out in front, up more than 1.3% apiece. On the downside, technology, travel, leisure, and construction. Lastly, we just highlight for you the utilities sector, some of the key names in utilities as um, European households consumers brace for higher energy prices. These names are in focus. Brian, over to you.
1: Yeah, you know, Juliana, that is a story that we have talked about since we were there in November. I know the situation continues to get worse. Uh, The rate hike hitting today. They're talking about another one in October. Uh, Personally, are you seeing it? Are people talking about it? Because sitting here in the United States, we know, though, what you guys are dealing with is likely coming here as well.
2: It is absolutely at the front of nearly everybody's minds. Yesterday, a number of websites crashed in the U.K. for energy suppliers as households. People rushed to put in what are called meter readings before the April 1 uh, rise in prices. So that it's a huge topic, a huge concern. Cost of living is um, an incredibly problematic uh, part of, of life here right now, Brian.
1: Yeah, I want our viewers here to think about people in the U.K. facing energy poverty, having your power bills double overnight. That's what a lot of families, many of them underserved, are facing. Juliana Tadelbaum, thank you for that. Do appreciate it. All right, President Biden not only making a declaration on oil Thursday, but also taking new steps to help ramp up the production of electric cars here in America. Seema Modi is in with that and more of your morning's top stories. Good Friday morning, Sema, and welcome to April.
3: Welcome to April, Brian. Good morning to you. And that's right, President Biden invoking the Defense Production Act over materials that go into EV batteries. The move by the president could help companies receive government funding for feasibility studies on projects that extract materials. So any, anything including lithium, nickel and cobalt, which do go into those batteries Demand for lithium in particular has boomed as more auto companies race to develop electric vehicles. Now, this move by the White House comes after it unveiled a plan last month to allocate five billion dollars to fund EV chargers over five years as a part of the infrastructure package. In other news, Wall Street is watching shares of GameStop soaring in extended trading after announcing it plans to implement a stock split. The video game retailer revealing it will seek approval for the move at its next shareholder meeting. Under the plan, GameStop's share count would be increased in order to conduct the split, which would be the second in the stock's history. The company also says it expects the increased share count would provide flexibility for future corporate needs. And a group of senators asking the FTC to review Microsoft's more than $68 billion bid to buy Activision Blizzard. According to The Wall Street Journal, Senators Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, Sheldon Whitehouse cite their concerns about consolidation in the tech industry. For the request, Brian, the lawmakers add they're also concerned the deal could Hurt efforts to hold active vision management accountable for widespread allegations of sexual uh, abuse, harassment, and discrimination. Back to you.
1: All right, big, big story there. We'll get more in a bit later on. Seema Modi, thank you. We'll see you in a few minutes. All right, after a tough first quarter, your next guest says that markets are at a bit of a critical crossroads with a very tight time frame for any sort of resolution. He says it will all be about jobs and profit margins to try to get the bull stampeding and the buyers coming in once again. Robert Teeter is the head of the Investment Policy and Strategy Group at Silvercrest Asset Management and joins us once more. Happy Friday and welcome to April, Robert. Uh, An April unfortunately facing a huge inflationary headwind, but March was a pretty decent month for the stock market, surprising many. How do you read the
4: macro environment right now? Yes. Well, good morning, Brian. Thanks for having me on again. And welcome to a new quarter. I think the, the big thing to point to here is, as you said, I think we're at a crossroads. And that crossroads is that the market has been very resilient in the first quarter, resilient to persistent inflation, uh, resilient to the inverted yield curve, the mixed signal that you pointed out earlier. And so far, markets have held up reasonably well. Uh, but the critical question here is how will earnings unfold? How will margins unfold? And I think it's really a make or break quarter for earnings as it relates to stock prices going forward.
1: Well, listen, you, you've obviously, if you watch CNBC, and I'm assuming you do, Robert, you may have heard just, you know, like every hour about this inverted yield curve, right? Now, nominally, it did invert. The point I tried to make at the top of the show is that when you factor in inflation, like the pros do, that the real yields, as they call them, have not inverted. So are you looking at that so-called inversion as as a thing? Does it matter? Uh, or is it just kind of a historical anomaly we have to watch?
4: I I think there are a lot of mixed signals around it. it. You're right. The the real yield curve is inverted. You could make the argument that this is all about inflation, less so than about growth. Um, I think you also have to consider the fact that there is a a wide range of the timeline with which the, the yield curve inversion works. So sort of on average, 12 months or so until a recession, maybe a bit more but a wide range around that. So that's another mixed signal. And then the final point I would make is that job growth has been very strong and there continue to be a huge number of jobs on offer around 10 million or so. That's also very unusual in the context of an inverted yield curve in anticipating a recession. So I'm not anticipating a recession. I think the yield curve here is more distorted from inflation, as you say, and also perhaps pointing to a slowdown in growth, but not not a recession.
1: All right. So what's your best advice? We like to call them Opportunity Fridays here on Worldwide Exchange. Is it to to lever up your home and, and buy shares of GameStop on margin? Or is there a smarter investment strategy that you are advocating right now, Robert? (laughs) I think it's
4: smart to be a little bit more conservative than that. It's been a volatile market. There's a lot going on here. Um, We do think there are some areas to like. I do think earnings season will get the message back on track for fundamentals. Stocks will likely track uh, earnings higher from here. And the places that we like are those that have had strong and growing margin growth. So places like uh, Technology and Consumer Discretionary have done a great job in managing margins despite all the problems. And our expectation is that they'll continue to do the same going forward.
1: Well, I know your clients and investors hope that you are right after coming off a pretty strong March, despite overall a lousy first quarter because January and February, we'll just, you know what, we're just going to forget about those two months. They were terrible. Robert Teeter, have a great day. Have a great weekend. Thank you for getting up early. Do appreciate it. Take care. Thank you, Brian. All right, folks, thank you for getting up early. We are not, we are just getting going. We got a lot more to do coming up. The never ending COVID lockdowns in China getting worse and the people starting to get fed up. We are live in China with more. Plus, send the bankers some love. It's been a tough start to the year for global deal-making. We'll dive into the new numbers and the headwinds, taking a bite out of M&A. And later on, Barry Diller and David Geffen, reportedly under the microscope of the Feds, over what we shall say is some very well-timed trades of Activision. Stock futures up, oil down. We're back right after this.
0: needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
5: What does it mean to be
6: rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
1: All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody. And good Friday morning. Welcome to April, by the way. Looking like we might get a good start for the stock market anyway. We are seeing Dow futures carry through some of the momentum that we had In March, Dow futures up 175 points, so about three-tenths of 1% for all the major averages across the board. Of course, the overall first quarter, one of the worst we've ever had, but March was strong. And in the bond market, everybody's talking about that so-called inverted yield curve. Again, that means longer-term rates are below shorter term because people think the economy will slow down in a few years. Well, we are not inverted this morning. 10-year note at 2.41, the two-year less at 2.39. But again, that's what everybody was talking about and watching yesterday as some kind of maybe a warning sign, a red flag, recession warning signal, whatever you want to call it. We are not inverted today. All right, well, last year was a boom for mergers and acquisition activity and investment banking. But this year, somebody's hit the brakes. M&A and activity across the world has slowed a lot. That's according to a new report out of Refinitiv, the report showing that in the first quarter of this year, the value of global M&A activity is down 23 percent compared to the same quarter last year and down 35 percent compared to the fourth quarter of last year. But it's not all bad. Let's find out why. Joining us now is Matt Toole, director of deals intelligence at Refinitiv. And Matt, welcome. Here's how I kind of view it. I mean, those numbers, if I just threw them up there, people might go, oh, my gosh, slow down. But it feels like we went from 150 miles an hour on the highway to 130 miles an hour on the highway. By the way, don't do that unless you're on the Autobahn. But the slowdown is, correct me if I'm wrong, is from some pretty incredible numbers.
7: That's right, Brian. We uh, we saw the, the strongest year last year, uh, over oh, you know, oh, nearly six trillion of M&A last year. Uh, and I think you know, looking at this year as a as a as a as a brief pause, we're still over a trillion dollars. So it's been seven consecutive years or seven consecutive quarters of M&A over one trillion, uh, which is the first time we've seen that since we began tracking uh, M&A in 1980. So still highly elevated from historical levels.
1: Yeah. And is there a sign that the first quarter of this year is how the rest of the year is going to go, Matt? Or kind of like the stock market, we started off terribly, stocks sold off, we had Putin invade Ukraine, interest rates suddenly rose. All these things happened in just a couple of week period. I always tell people it's one of the more incredible times in a short period that we've experienced, or at least I have in a long time, and that the market, like everything else, just kind of paused. Do you think it'll reaccelerate, or is how the first quarter goes? So the year goes,
7: you know, I think the first quarter generally is one of the slowest quarters of each year. And so I think we will see MA activity pick up because because I think people are still assessing the new environment. So, as you said, the beginning of the year from a stock market perspective was very volatile uncertainty in the markets. uh, Interest rate uh, rises coming in and assessing that that kind of how that will affect financing. I think people are reassessing this new landscape and figuring out what their M&A playbook might be for the rest of the year. But, you know, generally, conditions are still very, very favorable. And again, companies are looking to grow. They're looking to expand. And uh, certainly with some of the factors that we have, particularly in technology and private equity, I would expect to see much more uh, of that activity as we continue through 2022.
1: But, but didn't deal making in particular private equity boom so much in part, Matt, not because they're the smartest people in the room, although many of them may be, Because money was free. I mean, money was almost free and super cheap. And so you borrow money on the cheap at one or 2%. You buy a company, you extract the cash flow, you offer your investors a return, you rinse, wash, repeat. When rates are that low, it's kind of hard not to do deals and look smart, right? I mean, how much are higher rates going to hurt?
7: Yeah. I mean, the equation will change. And so, you know, private equity buyers do have a mathematical calculation as to what makes sense for returns. And so, you know, they've raised record level levels of capital over the last two to three years. That can certainly be deployed. Um, there's there's certainly innovative ways of structuring transactions, bringing in partners. Um, obviously, the bond market will still be, you know, relatively attractive. Just, you know, at, one, at some point, that equation will change. And we don't know exactly when that will be. And we'll have to watch that quite closely because at some point, the private equity buyers will back out because it just doesn't make sense anymore for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing deal-making slow. We'll see if that continues through the year or just kind of a first-quarter anomaly with all that stuff we talked about happening. Matt Tuller of Refinitive, really appreciate getting up early for us, Matt. Have a great Friday, a good weekend. Talk to you soon. Take care. All right, still on deck. Is a bounce-back for the Big Apple about to happen? There are some hopeful signs that all that empty office space in Midtown may finally see life once again.
0: Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
1: As life returns to normal for most of the world, not so to China, where in Shanghai there are continuing rolling COVID lockdowns. And now officials extending those orders for some residents, millions of people already under several days of isolation, all in a bid to stop what is really a tiny number of new cases. A move coming as fresh questions arise about the economic impact of Beijing's strict COVID policies and the people, apparently starting to get fed up. Yuna Shun joining us now on the CNBC Newsline from Beijing. All right, Eunice, what is the the latest on these lockdowns extensions? I mean, how long can this go on?
5: Well, for another two weeks, for some people, Brian, uh, Shanghai is extending its lockdown for anyone whose buildings has reported one positive case. So for those people, many of them who are currently living on the east side of the city, which has already been in lockdown, uh, have been told that they will have to stay at home Uh, for the next 14 days. Now, this comes as the west side of the city goes into a full lockdown as well, despite what you had described, mounting public frustration with this lockdown. There have been several people uh, who've been posting uh, videos, um, very, very upset of protests at housing complexes, of very crowded conditions at uh, government uh, quarantine centers, makeshift ones, including one at the Shanghai Expo, food shortage and also what people have been describing as inadequate medical care. Uh, they're also challenging the case count, uh, not only of the, just the general cases, but also of the number of deaths. In fact, one hospital uh, which specializes in elderly care has come under um, a, spe- a, a lot of scrutiny um, online. And um, for what people have been saying is an unreported massive COVID outbreak there. And as you well know, uh, Brian, elderly care centers in the United States as well have seen a very large number of cases of deaths. And here in, in Shanghai, uh, right now, Shanghai hasn't reported any deaths. So there's a lot of questioning going on.
1: It's it's hard to comprehend. I mean, two weeks to bend the curve. Anybody remember that? That was two years ago. And we learned here in the United States and much of the world based on data that A lot of these mitigation techniques ultimately aren't going to work that well because people at the home are going to mingle wherever it may be. I mean, our covid rates spiked, as you know, Eunice, over these holidays a year and a half later. So separate fact from fiction. You know, the the information coming out of China sometimes is hard. Social media can lie. It can be wrong. I'm seeing stories of people uh, of reports where some provinces are ordering people to kill their pets. If the pets test positive, that people aren't going to the hospital's. With actual life-threatening illnesses, because they think the hospitals filled with COVID patients, help us separate fact from fiction, please.
5: I think a lot of that is true. I mean, we are seeing um, a lot of anger over the hospital conditions, especially because um, there have been individual cases which have been posted online of um, older people who've gone. Um, You know, gone to the hospital to get care for something unrelated, such as asthma, for example, and then not being cared for and then um, having another um, complication and sometimes death. Um, In terms of the pets, that is definitely true. Since the very early days of the pandemic, uh, the Chinese authorities have been uh, taking people's pets And in fact, uh, just this week, there was a city that's close to Beijing that had put put an order that anyone who tests positive for COVID would have to have their pets taken away and killed. And then there was a huge uproar over that. The city changed its policy, but a lot of people have been complaining that their pets were already taken away. So, in fact, in some places, including in Shanghai, there have been teams of volunteers who've been uh, trying to help those who have pets, but or who tested positive to try to get the pets out of their houses before the authorities come for them.
1: I, 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 I want our viewers to understand that. I mean, think about you live in the United States or Europe or wherever you are watching this. You got a dog, a seven-year-old dog. It's a part, my dog. I don't know about you, Eunice. My dogs eat better than I do. I mean, they're part of our family. And then I test positive for <laughs> COVID, and some some unnamed government guy comes to take my dogs away, uh, and does. I, I I just it's hard to comprehend. The COVID-zero policy is bizarre. It, it's never worked anywhere. We have learned the world knows that. Um, best to you, Eunice. I know it's tough and uh, it's hard. It can be it can be hard talking about all this stuff, but we really. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine that, folks? I mean, over one case in your apartment building, they locked down the entire building for two weeks. Uh, at some point, it seems like there's got to be a breaking point. Who knows? All right. Still on deck. The White House tapping America's emergency oil stockpile once again, trying to bring down gasoline prices. But could it do more harm than good? we will be right back. It's a Taylor Swift stock market. The stocks look to shake it off after one of the worst first quarters to a year ever. Oil back below 100. China's continued COVID lockdowns hitting demand. Then is the White House tapping our emergency reserves to try to bring down gasoline prices. And uh uh-oh, a couple of very well-timed big trades by billionaires Barry Diller and David Geffen around Activision. Now catching the eye of the Feds. We'll tell you why. No fooling on this Friday, April 1st, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Welcome or welcome back, everybody. Good Friday morning and welcome to April. I am Brian Sullivan. It is 532 here on the East Coast. And here's how your money and investments look right now, as we are just a little over halfway through that 5 a.m. hour. Stock futures, they are on the rise. So April showers bring May stock market gains. I don't know. We're going to see what happens. The Dow is up 219 points, about three-tenths of 1%. NASDAQ and Dow futures are also higher. Now, overall, we're coming into April kind of in a mixed bag. On one hand, we're coming off the worst first quarter since 2020, but that's a bad comp because, of course, the pandemic hit. One of the worst first quarters ever, however, but also coming off a March rally. So overall for the quarter, we saw the Dow and the S&P fall about 5%. The NASDAQ got hit even harder. High valuation tech stocks fell As the S&P rose, the Nasdaq broke a seven-quarter win streak and fell about 9%. But the month of March was very strong. In fact, the Nasdaq bouncing more than 15% in just two weeks. So that late quarter momentum may carry over into April. At least the futures are indicating it could. We've also got to take a look at the big market story. And that is, of course, oil. As oil goes down, stocks tend to go up and vice versa. And right now, oil, it's up a bit, but we were under 100 bucks a barrel just moments ago. You, of course, got those COVID lockdowns in China. That's probably the big reason oil is falling. But you've also got the president announcing plans yesterday to once again tap that strategic, the emergency uh, gasoline or petroleum reserve in a bid to combat high oil and gas prices. Listen.
6: This is a wartime bridge. To increase oil supply until production ramps up later this year. And it is by far the largest release of our net our national reserve in our history. It will provide historic amount of supply for a historic amount of time, a 6-month bridge to the fall. And we'll use the revenue from selling the oil now to restock the strategic petroleum reserve when prices are lower.
1: All right, now under that plan, uh, 1 million barrels of oil per day is expected to be released from the SPR in the first six months. Every day, so 180 million barrels, the first barrels will come to market next month, really in a couple weeks. That comes out to about 180 million barrels of oil. By comparison, U.S. consumes more than 7 billion barrels of oil every year. The influx of oil from the reserve would likely also not be enough to make up for the loss of Russian crude, that will ultimately be withheld to the market, according to sanctions. Now, according to the IEA, 3 million barrels per day of Russian oil could be shaved off the market this month, many of that coming here to the United States. That means any additional supply by the Biden administration would only replace about a third of lost production from Russia. Still, it's better than nothing. Keep in mind, folks, Russian oil is still on the way to the United States. You thought the sanctions hit, they did. But remember, there's a 45-day window where you could secure contracts. And according to Vortexa, there are 17 ships still on the ocean headed to the United States. The last one set to arrive, I think it is April 15th or 16th, something like that, right around Easter with Russian oil. So that release of the SPR should start to occur right as the last vessel of Russian oil reaches the shores of the United States. All right. Outside of that, there's a lot more going on on this Friday morning. Let's find out some of the key stories with Seema Modi once again. Seema.
3: Brian, good morning. Amazon workers at an Alabama warehouse appeared to have rejected a union for the second time. But it's not official yet, with hundreds of ballots still being contested. This second vote was called after the National Labor Relations Board said Amazon improperly interfered in last spring's election. Meantime, in a different vote at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, early results show the pro-union side in the lead. Activision Blizzard, its CEO and some media moguls, are under scrutiny this morning. The Wall Street Journal reports authorities are looking into at least one meeting between Activision CEO Bobby Kotick and Barry Diller's stepson, Alexander von Furstenberg. The two met in the week before von Furstenberg, Diller and David Geffen, bought Activision Options On January 14th, that options trade came days before Microsoft announced it was acquiring Microsoft acquiring the company and has generated an unrealized profit of nearly 60 million dollars. The SEC and DOJ are said to be conducting separate investigations. Diller has denied any wrongdoing. A so-called hacktivist group known as Anonymous reportedly has a new target. Western businesses still doing business in Russia. Anonymous has launched a cyber war against Vladimir Putin's country. Some of the companies that have been called out by Anonymous on Twitter say they have already publicly announced they've pulled out of Russia. Brian.
1: All right, Sima Modi, thank you for that. All right, well, speaking of Russia, let's get now the very latest from Ukraine. Peace talks are set to resume today between Russian and Ukrainian officials, all, of course, in a bid to bring the five-week war to an end. Ahead of those talks, Ukrainian officials announcing that all Russian forces occupying the Chernobyl nuclear power plant had indeed withdrawn. In the meantime, European leaders are rejecting Putin's ultimatum that those buying Russian gas in the area have to pay for that gas in Russian rubles beginning today or have energy exports halted. NBC News's Molly Hunter is in Lviv, Ukraine, with more on all of it. Where do we stand right now, Molly?
6: Brian, good morning. That's right. Peace talks getting back underway virtually this time, not actually in person in Istanbul. And on the Ukrainian side, trust is low. So early this week, we heard President Putin uh, talk about de-escalating around Kyiv and Chernihiv. It's to the northeast of the capital. That has not happened. Now, this morning, the U.K. Ministry of Defense has an assessment I'll share. Uh, it says Chernihiv and Kyiv have been subjected to continued air and missile strikes despite Russian claims of reducing activity in the area. Uh, we also hear that Ukraine has continued to make successful but limited Counterattacks to the east and northeast of Kyiv, according to the UK Ministry of Defense. And now we're also hearing from Chernihiv officials who say Russian troops are withdrawing. They're withdrawing from Chernihiv, though, as they are getting pummeled from the air. And part of the narrative, Brian, of course, is that as Russian troops are Withdrawing, they're going to uh, resupply, they're going to reorganize, rest up their troops, uh, you know, figure out how to reorganize after heavy battlefield losses and then launch additional attacks. Uh, According to Ukrainians, that is what they are waiting for. But part of that narrative is also that Ukrainian troops are seeing some success. We know they've taken two towns uh, just outside of Chernihiv, Brian.
1: We have seen video and pictures from Mariupol about the devastation there, bombings of hospitals, residential apartment buildings, people left dead on the street. Can you give us the update of the latest in Mariupol and the push to help residents there get out? I know many have left, Molly, but many are still there. They have stayed either voluntarily or involuntarily. What are you hearing about the devastation there?
6: Yeah, Mariupol on the southeast coast, Brian, on the Sea of Azov, has really just borne the brunt of Russian aggression, as we've been speaking about almost every single day. Now, today was going to be a big, uh, another big evacuation convoy. They've been trying almost every single day. Our understanding, Brian, is that about 100 to 170,000 people remain inside. Uh, many are desperately trying to get out. So the, uh, we just got news actually literally minutes ago that the evacuation convoy is on its way. So you leave Mariupol, get to Berdyansk, then Berdyansk to Zaporizhia. We now hear that 42 buses with about 2,000 people are getting uh, on their way to Berdyansk to Zaporizhia. Part of the understanding, though, with the humanitarian convoy was that civilians were going to get out life-saving humanitarian aid from the ICRC, the Red Cross was going to get in. We do not have word yet whether or not those, you know, life-saving medicine, basic food, supplies that people so desperately need is actually uh, able to reach uh, people inside Mariupol yet.
1: Yeah, let's hope. That is, Mariupol has really become the the symbol of this, this disgusting and unwinnable war by Vladimir Putin. Molly Hunter in Lviv. Uh, Thanks for being with us once again, Molly. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Coming up before you call New York City real estate over, you're going to want to hear from our next guest. Some rather surprising new stats and maybe a little hope for the Big Apple. Stick around. All right. Welcome back. If you've been in Midtown Manhattan lately, you know one thing. It's in pretty bad shape. Yeah, there are lots of people walking around, but most of them seem to be sort of sightseeing, going to Broadway, or just kind of gawking. The office workers are still missing. Buildings are largely empty, and many retail shops in those buildings are abandoned. The bottom line, lockdowns lockdown Some people out of NYC, and it really is, at least in Midtown, kind of a shell of its former self. But there may be some hope for the Big Apple workplace provider. International Workplace Group is seeing some demand ticking up in parts of the city. Joining us now is Mark Dixon, CEO of International Workplace Group. Mark, good to have you on. A really important story. I mean, uh, Midtown is, is still tough to be in. rest of the city is kind of vibrant, but not Midtown. Are you seeing any change from where you stand for the better?
8: Yeah, look, a lot of change. We've, since the beginning of the year, we've seen occupancy overall in New York uh, go up by 23%, um, which is significant in our business. Um, but we, we're also seeing a change in the way workers want to use New York City. They, they want to drop in. So our, our membership products, 10-day or drop-in overall membership, up by 100 150%. So people are using the city in a different way. The real enemy is commuting, and it's the commuting that workers are trying to avoid. But they still want to use New York City. Um, As a place to meet, a place to collaborate, there's nowhere better um, to to do that. So a lot of change we're seeing in our our business, but overall, um, a lot more use and, and a lot more people in the offices.
1: Now, the good news is, Mark, is that you said the enemy is commuting, that the stats from the Metro North, New Jersey Transit, is a pretty big jump in ridership. Not anywhere near where it was pre-pandemic and lockdowns, we get it, but it is ticking up. Are you seeing some signs of life there that people are coming in? I mean, the price of gas, of course, does not help.
8: Yeah, absolutely. But look, there's, there's no way to sugarcoat this. New York will not be the same again. I mean, basically, technology and the pandemic have changed the way new york city will be in the future and new york city as many other cities around the world we operate in 120 countries over a thousand cities um you know cities like new york where the commute's long where it's expensive to live there's not enough housing at reasonable prices new york will have to reinvent itself it's already a fantastic location has everything but what it doesn't have is People living within easy commuting distance. Yeah, Um, and it's gonna it's gonna take a big change to bring it back to its former glory.
1: You either live in the city or you live out, and to get in from out, as you know, Mark, you just said it is incredibly tough. I mean, the idea of, I guess, stacking everybody in you know sort of cubicleless open workplace environments in a fifty story building now just seems really silly. Why we ever did it in the first place seems a bit bizarre. We don't want to brag, but when the pandemics hit, we did a lot of segments on this show about how these sort of unused and kind of ugly three-story suburban office buildings, which had been long abandoned, are going to suddenly look very attractive to companies looking to please their workforce who doesn't want to drive into New York. Are you seeing new signs of life for these sort of ubiquitous, you know, don't need to use the elevator-type buildings?
8: Absolutely. So look, the the geography of where people work has changed probably forever. Um, And and that's, it's technology that's facilitated this. And, And the pandemic got everyone using the technology. So companies were able to maintain or even improve productivity, not having people all in one office, but having people working everywhere. But a lot of people don't want to work from home. They want to work close to home and come into an office in, say, New York or, San Francisco, to collaborate, to bring people together. And, you know, all the the transport comes into New York City. So it is a fantastic place place to collaborate. But what you're going to see is real estate in the suburbs. And just to give an example, in Long Island, we don't have any space left at all. And we have quite a few centers there. Um, You know, these are the places we're opening up. Um, You know, it's where people live. That's where the best real estate will be in the future.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Some of these these suburban buildings left for long dead, now full. Mark Dixon, International Workplace Group. Mark, get you back on again soon, okay? Because I think it's an incredibly important story for many big cities, not just New York. Mark, thank you. Thank you very much. Has New York City been changed forever? That's a huge question. All right, on deck. A tough first quarter? Yeah, forget about it. It's in the rearview mirror. Jenny Harrington is here to lay out some stocks high on her radar as we kick off April and the second quarter. It is Opportunity Friday here on Worldwide Exchange, and we are back right after this. And by the way, if you haven't already, check out the podcast. All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody, and welcome to April, by the way. Let's bring in one of our favorite guests on what we call Opportunity Fridays here, and that is, of course, Jenny Harrington, CEO and fund manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. CNBC contributor smiling despite Jenny fresh off like a a friendly but good-spirited debate with our friend Jim Cramer on the halftime report yesterday. You guys were going at it pretty hard over Intel. What was that all about?
9: Well... I think the thing is on TV everything tries to go into a box, right? Black or white. The reality is as Jim Cramer and I are very much in the same what? camp if you if you actually listen to the nuance. Okay, here's the thing. You know what? We're both like what we're both saying is is that there's huge possibility, huge potential for semis. And and we're just looking at it from different angles. I don't mean to be like a sissy right now and trying to like find common ground, but the reality of what what is going on is that the U.S. semiconductor market is like $566 billion a year. Then within that, there's the PC space. You've got Intel that's earning, sorry, that will produce revenues of like $75 billion. And shoot, hold on, I've got my notes right here because I didn't know we were going straight to this. And we've got AMD that will produce revenues of $16.5 billion. Yes, AMD has been eating Intel's lunch and taking market share, but there's room for everybody. And so what, what Jim was saying is, Part of what he was saying is he's like, you know, they're taking market share, this and that, blah, blah, blah. He loves um, Lisa Su, who's the CEO of um, of AMD. He doesn't like Pat Galsander. We have differences in perspectives on that. Then what the debate turned into was. Uh, sorry. And then it went into Stephanie's. I'm trying to think of the whole thing. But then when it turned into to a bit of a degree, it was like the bigger picture, which is that yeah. we all know that semis are cyclical. We know that that cyclicality cuts both ways. And then what we were talking about is valuations, right? So so in my opinion, yeah. you've got Intel that's trading at about 12 times, 10, 12 times earnings. The pushback on the AMD and NVIDIA is that their valuations are stretched. And so when you have a cyclical market, I think that there's you know, and this is one of the things actually afterwards that I talked to Steph about is like the price for perfection, right? Intel is priced for nothing. AMD and NVIDIA are priced for perfection. But the reality of this is, is there is room for AMD. There is room for NVIDIA. There is room for Intel. And over the long term, they will all continue to mint cash. So, you know, choose your horse, choose your player. The reality is, is you're probably going to make money in all three if you have a long term patient time horizon.
1: And apparently room for me to throw you under the TV bus live on the air at 550, Jenny. Sorry about that. I (laughs) I was watching. It was was a good spirited debate with with Jim. I think he enjoyed it as well. All right, let's move on to a tech name that maybe you you are prepared to talk about a little more, which is Cisco. Again, I feel like the argument you just made for Intel, you could probably swap out for Cisco as well.
9: Right, absolutely. And then this, you could even... Extrapolate this into a bigger conversation about tech, right? Like, oh, do you want to be long tech this year? And I keep saying, depends on which part of tech you want to be. I do not want to be long the ARC complex tech. I totally want to be long the Cisco kind of tech, which is a company that's trading at 15 and a half times earnings. Revenue growth should be about, sorry, earnings growth should be about 7% next year. This benefits from return to office. And to your point, the conversation that you were having just about this before about Manhattan real estate, and your guest was saying that will never be the same. You know what? For Cisco, that's good because if people partially work from the office and partially work from home, then the networking um, complexity is so much greater than it used to be. And a combination of working with Zoom and not with Zoom and in-person, all of that is complex and complicated and hard and needs security and wildly benefits a company like Cisco. So, yeah, do I want to be there? Absolutely. Um, And that fair valuation in this kind of murky market makes me really comfortable.
1: That hybrid environment, by the way, Jenny, is also very bullish for energy demand because companies have to leave all the lights on regardless if two people are there or (laughs) 2,000. And then you've also, of course, got your work from home. So you're kind of using almost double the energy because people are split up. I know you like names like a shell and some others around the world for income.
9: Right. Um, And I think you could go on and on about all the demands for energy. energy. And Brian, you and I... Yeah, you and I have been talking about this for two years. You know, while while other people were out there saying like, oh, energy's uninvestable and energy's dead, you and I have been some of the few, I think, or you you and I were two of the few who agreed Two years ago, like, hey, guess what? We both drove our cars to work this morning, and we used fossil fuels to get there, and we didn't ride unicorns, sunshine, and rainbows. So there's so much demand for fossil fuel. I know you and I both would love to live in a beautiful world where we don't use it, but we do, and that's going to be very, very, very long-term that we're going to wean off. I mean, there's a million interesting things, and we only have like four minutes, but this is like a two-hour conversation that would be amazing on how long and why and all the reasons that we're going to be dependent are. So yeah, you've got... Royal Dutch Shell, you've got um, Total in our portfolio, we've got Chevron. They all have yep. great income. They will not actually be that negatively impacted by what's going on in Russia. Probably higher oil prices benefit them. Anything above $70 a barrel will just help them mint cash. So I'm staying long, and frankly, I'm being a little greedy.
1: Well, why don't we do an hour-long thing on CNBC Pro, you and I? What do you think? And we got all the time in oh, the world. I'd love Let's it. Let's do it.
5: I'd love it. Let's, we're going to okay, do it. sounds Sold. Good.
1: That's how it works. (laughs) Okay. Jenny Harrington, virtually networking. Jenny, love you. Thank you for coming on the program. Appreciate it. And, folks, thank you for tuning in all week long here at Worldwide Exchange. We'll see you back here on Monday. If you're leaving, have a great weekend. But stick around because Squawk, all the news and what you need to know coming up next. Have a great weekend wherever you are. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.